0: Distinguished guests, uh, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is Simon Gaskell. I'm president and principal of Queen Mary University of London. and I have the great pleasure of introducing you to this evening's lecture, part of the program of the Mile End Institute. At Queen Mary, we're rather proud of the Mile End Institute. It is an institute which, uh, through scholarly academic study and through dissemination of its findings, through publication, commentary, and events such as this, seeks to influence and inform public policy. Now I say events such as this, but in truth, there is no event quite like this. This is the showpiece, the annual, the annual centerpiece, if you like, of the um, activities of the Mile Institute because we're celebrating the contributions and indeed the continuing patronage of Peter Lord Hennessy, who has been a guiding light for work such as that carried out by the Mylind Institute for many years here at Queen Mary. So it's it's a great uh, privilege to have the annual opportunity, Peter, to thank you for your continuing contributions to the Institute and more broadly uh, to the University and indeed to me personally. So I very much appreciate that opportunity. Now we're fortunate that Peter is also going to chair this evening's event, uh, bringing his usual uh, erudition and wit to the proceedings. And so I'm going to hand over now to Peter to ask him to introduce uh, this evening's uh, lecture. Welcome once again.
1: Thank you, Simon, for that very warm introduction. I'm truly grateful to Queen Mary and the Myland Institute for this annual lecture. It's a great honor for me and it's an absolute treat every time we get together. I should say for those of you who are not used to this wonderful great hall, uh, two things you should know about it. One is the noise that you hear is the underground. Do not be alarmed by it. Secondly, it is a great piece of political history because in this very hall on July the 26th, 1945, the count for the 1945 general election for the seats of Limehouse and Mile End was in here. So it was in this very room that Mr. Attlee realized for the first time he was going to be Prime Minister and lead a majority Labor government. So it's a special room, and it's very fitting that we should have lectures of this kind in this great hall. It's a pleasure and an honor, too, to introduce Michael Heseltine this evening. We first met in the spring of 1982, when he was Secretary of State for the Environment and was Minister for Merseyside in the aftermath of the 1981 riots. And I was a young journalist on The Economist. I remember it vividly. He picked me up one morning in Toxteth in his blue Jaguar. I'm pretty sure it was blue, Michael. No officials, no special branch protection, no officers of any kind, just the two of us. And he drove me around Liverpool explaining what he hoped to do to help regenerate the inner areas and indeed heighten and Kirby on the outskirts too. And later, Michael was joined by a busload of business people for a tour and an afternoon of exhortation and briefing. Now, friendship with politicians can be a tricky thing for a political journalist, as I then was. But I like to think, Michael, that you and I did become friends that morning, and we've remained that way ever since. Over 10 years after that first encounter in Toxteth, I asked Michael one day what he would have done if he'd succeeded Mrs. Thatcher as Prime Minister in 1990 rather than his friend John Major. And if I recall, Michael, if I recall it accurately, you said, I would have undertaken a speaking tour of the length and breadth of the United Kingdom, which I would have entitled The Forgotten People. I would have started somewhere in the north of Scotland, perhaps the Western Isles, working my way down through one deprived area after another. The speeches would then have formed the chapters of the manifesto of the general election I intended to call. I think I've got it right. So I've long been curious to know what would have been in Michael's Forgotten People speeches, though I can guess a substantial part of them. But given Michael's title this evening is The Forgotten People, I hope we'll hear an updated version of how those speeches might have sounded. The plan is for Michael to speak, followed by a conversation between the two of us, and then a question and answer session from the floor. And we'll finish a few minutes before 8 and repair to the octagon, and you'll have people to guide you to have a drink together. Michael, you're hugely welcome.
2: Well, Peter, thank you for those very friendly and warm words of welcome, as if I may pick your theme, one friend to another. Uh, I must say I, I had many thoughts as to what this evening would be like. There was one that never occurred to me and it takes me back to my very early days in London where I was the owner Of a 40 bedroom hotel. And um, there were many problems with the hotel, but one of the most conspicuous ones is that the central line went underneath it. And as you explained about the noise of the uh, tube underneath, I will never forget the experience of trying to book people into the New Court Hotel in Inverness Terrace. It was absolutely crucial that you got them to sign in and hopefully into their room before the whole thing (laughs) began to bounce up and down as the underground went beneath. Well this is noisy but at least the building seems to have stood the strain of it rather well. But I do want to say thank you for inviting me and uh, uh, to recognise that the work of the Institute focuses on the connection between academic research and public policy and politics and you couldn't be in better hands or under more distinguished patronage than that of Peter himself. His preoccupation with learning the lessons of political history is one, of course, that I share and I hope to explore in some depth tonight. And indeed, of course, this part of London has been central to my political experience and therefore it is personally a particular satisfaction to be back here. I want to return later to my connection with East End and Docklands both to, my, to express my pride in what has been achieved here, but in a way also to express my regrets for some things that I got wrong. As Peter has said, the title of this lecture is The Forgotten People. Theresa May, when she stood on the steps of Downing Street in July, having just accepted Her Majesty's invitation to be Prime Minister spoke very emotively of the harsh reality of the consequences of each of us being different to one another. The consequences of being black rather than white, male rather than being female, young rather than old. And of course, she is right, and I commend her determination to correct that unfairness. It is only through doing so that we can achieve the one nation that I have campaigned for all my political life. But it is also true that our aspiration is held back by other things, not just our physical characteristics, our personalities or our beliefs. These things are important. But our backgrounds define our lives too. Our childhoods, the people we associated with, and the places where we lived. These are issues that create and challenge our political philosophy and agenda. How we create better spaces for people to live, to grow, to learn, to play, to meet, to call home, and to say that word home with pride, dissatisfaction and Total disengagement with the place you live is a stark feature of parts of British society, and the recent referendum perhaps played some part in reinforcing that message. I don't mean a lack of pride in your city or your suburb. It is more local and more personal than that. There are communities, even streets, that combined together evoke no sense of pride. No pride in the architecture, no access to the people who can support you to get ahead in life, and no belief that you have a stake in your community and its future. And These pockets of low engagement and aspiration exist up and down the country. It is a problem that is seen in parts of London as much as it is in other towns and cities. But London as the capital city, as the political heart of our parliamentary and administrative structure, helped to cause the problem. We are a very centralized democracy. I understand that if you live in concert on a deprived estate 250 miles away from the people that decide your future, that you become frustrated, lack hope, and ultimately become apathetic to it all. Many of the men and women who devise the policies that will shape your early years, your adolescence, your education, your life chances, your life itself, have never experienced your sort of life. But the truth is, never mind 250 miles away. If you are two and a half miles away from the Houses of Parliament in one of London's deprived communities, your experience is likely to be much the same. So let us be frank. The people who design and construct these deprived communities do not tend to live in them. As the years have gone by, there are long-term social drifts at work here, as those who could afford to choose have moved to the outskirts of the cities their forefathers built reducing the reaction and interaction with the people who now live within them to having a less of a stake in their success. Of course, centuries ago, westerly winds drew development to the west to get away from the stink of the eastern areas. Different social drifts are at work today but they have the same divisive consequences. Far too frequently, those that provide the day-to-day services for some of our most challenging communities do not belong to them. The people that educated the children, who tended to the ill and who provided care to the frail, have moved away. They do not feel they have a share in the success of them. That is bad in itself, but it creates a whole separate conundrum. Most of you here will have had good social connections, connections that in a myriad of social situations provide informal advice and guidance. There is a friend who can help you with your mortgage application, your mother's friend from university who is a solicitor who can advise you on the dispute you're having with your landlord. Your partner's aunt, who is willing to explain how to start a small business. It is social interchange, the network of people we know from similar socio-democratic backgrounds. They make our lives simpler. And it is quite right that we should help each other in such ways. But these social networks do not extend readily to those in communities without this range of qualified and professional advice. Now, I do not wish to write off these communities as talentless places with no hope far from it. The problem is that they have become detached from the people that make the decisions about them. Victims of a century of centralization. I personally welcome the enormous strides the Conservative government has made devolving powers to places in recent years. Aside from Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, about half of England's population will soon have some form of devolved agreement from Whitehall. The Mayor of London has responsibility for many decisions that affect those that are here today. And next year, Manchester, Liverpool, the West Midlands, Sheffield and the Tees Valley will choose their democratically elected mayors. The power of office will bring devolved decision-making and budgets across a whole multitude of areas. Areas like transport, skills provision and business support. It will also come up with some £6.5 billion for investment in a flexible pool In infrastructure over the next 30 years which has already been announced by central government for those areas affected it will be under the direct control of those places themselves and this will change attitudes experience becomes enriched by this newfound responsibility the powers being given to those mayors will much affect the physical environment in which we all live and that in itself is much to be welcomed. The devolution direction of urban regeneration is now established, and if you doubt me, look at Liverpool now and compare it to the city of the early 1980s. As in Liverpool, so the early experiments began here in the East End of London too. The story of Docklands tells itself. Younger members of the audience may not know that in the late 1980s, Seventies, It was a barren wasteland. We established the Docklands Development Corporation and it initiated much of what you see today. I remember the origins of my interest in the area. Responsible for the search for the third London airport in the early 1970s, I flew over East London to the Essex coast. The dereliction was evident. There was a clear need to concentrate energy and resources in the redevelopment of our inner cities. The strategy was clear. We had to clear the detritus of history, clean up the toxic ground, and enable the land to be strong enough to compete with the green fields for new investment jobs and employment. It may sound silly to hear me say I regret anything about a project that so transformed this part of East London. But there does remain a regret. I understood the anxiety of the local people affected, but I never saw the point of consulting them. I had anticipated their views. They would simply have asked for more public money to sustain their already heavily published, publicly subsidised lifestyles. The audience to which I felt myself appealing were the children of those elderly people, and they had gone in search of their own homes or for the opportunities of the new towns. Looking back, I was wrong to avoid a dialogue. It is invariably wrong to assume that you know the other person's arguments. There may be surprising common ground. There are countless examples of the resourcefulness of communities to shape their own physical space. A a more modern phenomenon is the community-led project. Innovative approaches to the physical environment of local buildings and open spaces. Community projects such as that in Tallaca Gardens Camden, where the local community working with young adults from four local secondary schools created ceramic and modern art on their local benches. The project helped to broaden horizons, building belief in how individual action improves communities. The scale of the project is not the critical ingredient. Local involvement and a desire to reclaim a sense of pride in place is the key. The simple act of residents coming together to bring nature to an area with no gardens, planting shrubs and flowers for everyone to enjoy has been hugely beneficial, for example, in Peckham. These are examples from here in London, but the proof of how these community projects can sow the seeds of community regeneration can be seen across the country. In an area of Nottingham, rife with crime and drug dealing, that drove away residents. A Royal Horticultural Society, It's Your Neighborhood project, initiated and run by local people, has introduced flowers and plants to the streets. The look and feel of the place has changed completely. Indeed, such was the success of the project that crime and antisocial behavior reduced by 16% in the first three months alone and this estate now has a waiting list of people wanting to move in. When people have a feeling of ownership of the place, they live in, they respect it more. So the challenge is not just to con- reconnect those that design our inner city living spaces with the areas they created and built, but above all, to involve local people in the design itself. My experience in the 1990s, returning to the Department of the Environment, took on a dimension hardly present when I was there in the 1980s. Most of the urban programs I dealt with after 1979 involved derelict land. There were no people. In 1990, we turned to the infinitely more complex issues of deprived communities. From within the budget of the Department of the Environment, we found the money to offer local authorities with such estates an opportunity for fundamental change. We offered ten packages of £35 million, spread over five years, £7 a year, to some 30 local authorities, provided they came forward with a coherent plan to redesign the estates and enhance the opportunities of the local community. As there were only 10 packages and 30 authorities, it was a competition with more losers than winners. There were also conditions unusual in social schemes of this sort. Each project had to have a discrete management team drawn from the public and private sectors. Each had to set out how much extra the local authority and the private sector would add to the 35 million pounds the government offered. It was an essential condition of success that the tenants had to be consulted and involved. I've always regarded City Challenge to be one of the most successful projects I ever designed. It changed the attitudes of local authority leaders and their private sector partners towards each other. It forced the different functional departments of local government to work together as teams and partners, and gave and it gave a stake in their community to the tenants themselves. Perhaps. Best of all, local authorities got over the shock of losing, and once they got over the shock, the losers rapidly found out how the winners had won, and they raised their game in the subsequent rounds. The 1997 election had, I thought, ended my experience in the work of government. It was not to be. After a series of appointments under David Cameron's new government, he invited me to co-chair with first Brandon Lewis and now Gavin Barwell, the housing minister, a commission to bring new purpose to a hundred of England's most difficult housing estates. Many of these estates have stood for decades. In the 1960s and 70s, thousands of them were built by local authorities across England. Whilst the debate on urban regeneration in our great cities may have been one, I believe there is so much more to do about some of the estates in these cities. And David Cameron very much saw this program as part of his legacy as a One Nation Prime Minister. Let me say something about the definition of such estates. Not all those selected are slums, although some are. Many are suffering the result of poor design, bad build, and under-management. So we didn't set out to choose the estates. They had to come forward and bid. We had a total of 140 million pounds. Now, that isn't enough in itself. But, of course, there were many other sources of funds, such as the Ghost Deal funding, the New Homes Builders Fund, the shared ownership and affordable homes program, private sector rental guarantees and of course what the private sector would add itself. So it is not just public funds but private too. The concept of gearing is now well established. Getting the private sector to co-fund investment projects, it would never be commercially viable for it to do on its own. Naturally, I look forward to this work continuing. David Cameron's purpose in setting up the Estates Committee was laudable in itself. The original concept envisaged new buildings, better design, and an improved environment. We have added two new initiatives to widen the purpose by revisiting some earlier work about the management of such estates. We want to establish the cost to society of maintaining existing policies of support. We want to explore the structure of such support. We also want to enter into a dialogue with tenants to establish their perspective of the policies that are being provided for their benefit. City Challenge taught important lessons in these areas. One more recent experience much informed these inquiries. I visited an estate in Birmingham with the Labour Council leader, Albert Bohr. I was taken aback at how the key social services the people depended on were spread across the city, independent from each other. I gathered some of the people delivering these services together most of them had never met. And this reflected the dysfunctional nature of government departments. Whitehall had been replicated in the local authority community. One team dealing with health another benefits, another training, and so on, all disparate from each other. The bus from the estate to the job center cost the unemployed two pounds to go each way. A whole existence designed for the individual functions of the central and local government, not the user or the beneficial. It was this that much encouraged our determination to proceed with these new investigations. We have invested, we have chosen four estates, in London, Manchester, Durham, and Liverpool, and we're working with those areas to establish First of all, the level and cost of public money on them. A previous research pilot in the three London estates found that whilst they housed 7% of the borough's population, they accounted for over 20% of the borough's youth offending budget. 15% of income spend and 12.5% of job seekers' allowance expenditure. The do-nothing option is one of continuing cost to the public purse, and we need to be sure we've got it right, and the attendants will have an interesting perspective. There is an underlying question. Is sufficient attention being devoted to the ladders of aspiration designed to open opportunities for improvement as opposed to just the amelioration of the existing circumstance. Let me make one important generalization. This is not a criticism of the countless men and women undertaking the numerous tasks of carrying out the policies of local and central government or their agencies or the third sector or many professional people involved. Without being exhaustive, it is obvious that apart from the Treasury, With the proper responsibility for expenditure, there are several departments with a direct interest in Whitehall. The Home Office, with its responsibility for policing. The Department for Education, with the responsibility for uh, all education and for skills. The Department of Health, with its wide range of health and social care responsibilities. Each of these departments conscientiously devises and seeks to implement policies designed to cope with the problems that come within their remit. The question that thrusts itself forward is whether there is any coordination of all these streams of activity at an estate level. Do these people ever meet to see their work in the round? Gordon Brown's government attempted to address the issue with its total place pilots. The work proposed a citizen's viewpoint to join up services and remove the confusion people face in using them. The figures collected in those pilots proved that such a coordinated approach could deliver greater value for money. And much more vitally, they showed that outcomes for the individual could be improved with better health and well-being, greater employment chances, and reduced crime. The 2010 election prematurely ended that work. It is too early to make any forecasts about the projects that I have told you about tonight, but it cannot be wrong to ask the questions that led to the projects. The conservative and coalition governments have driven decentralization since 2010. They have searched for better coordination, an accelerated impetus, and a strong devolution of power to enthuse and involve local people. Further devolution should mean thinking about the person as well as the place. So we must not rest on our laurels. Some call what is needed deeper devolution or others double devolution. Well, I've never been much of a one for labels. What matters is we get to the heart of these communities and make sure that we fix the problems for them and with them. One of the beauties of life is that you never stop learning. The flip side is that you never stop regretting. As you acquire new knowledge, you wish you had known it earlier and been able to apply it sooner. My career has focused largely on joined-up thinking on investment, capital build, and regeneration. The estate's work has opened my eyes to the challenges and opportunities of joined-up social policy. How can we take the successes of devolution further and spread them to social services? How do we take the principles we have applied to spending public money and extend them to the day-to-day support of the people who live in some of our most deprived communities? The government has made great strides in the right direction in the devolution of services. Take Greater Manchester's control of the National Health Service as an example as well as giving local clinicians a say on the provision of health and care services locally, it has opened up the opportunity for a dialogue with the private sector on medicines and treatments. In so doing, it has attracted new inward investment. So a radical approach to devolution of social services can deliver not only more locally inspired services, but can also contribute to an industrial strategy. The Manchester example is one that I know is close to home here, as the Institute is undertaking an analysis of the effect of devolution on the Manchester City region. Tackling the consequences of deprivation in our most stressful community is multifaceted. Solving these consequences via functional departments in London comes with its problems. My report, No Stone Unturned in Pursuit of Growth, Rehearsed the vital importance of Whitehall moving away from siloed departmental based thinking. As the government continues to devolve powers to places, the importance of removing departmental ring fences rather than passing down specific powers and budgets to achieve the same outcomes will be important if we are to release and realize the advantages of empowerment. The same challenge is true at a local level. There is little point demanding control over decisions, only for councils to replicate those silos locally. Devolution will keep happening. But let us be even more ambitious. As we continue to coordinate investment to make our cities a better place to call home, let us reach out to every community within them. And let us make sure that they're not just nicer places to call home but places where your life itself is improved. And I don't just mean reliable bus services or regular bin collections or lower council tax, but access to joined up services to support your caring responsibilities, your own health issues, and your education. The quality of life is much more than just a measured accumulation of individual services. So that is where I will end tonight. The Prime Minister called for policies that reach where others fail to penetrate. A significant test of the success will be measured in our deprived communities. When I arrived in Liverpool after the riots of 1981, it was a forgotten city. The people of that city have now changed it beyond recognition. So much has been achieved since. An extraordinary legacy. Now let us go further and deeper and ensure that the forgotten people of our society can be offered a hand, helping and encouraging them to a fuller, more rounded life. For in the years to come, that will be our legacy. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Michael, very much for that great tour d'horizon. Can I begin by asking you a wider look-back question? Who, amongst past political generations, shaped your thinking on this subject and particularly?
2: Well, to me, the archetype uh, post-war prime minister of the One Nation School would be Howard McMillan. And uh, I I also happen to think that he was a a man of great intellectual stature with a very real sense of vision, if you can have a real sense of vision. His Winds of Change speech was, to me, one of the outstanding speeches of the post-war world because it told the British people the truth, the uncomfortable truth. and he did it. Well,
1: the ending of the British Empire.
2: That the winds of change were that the days of empire were over. There are huge numbers of people who, who may have sensed it but didn't want to believe it. But he told them. Uh, but I, I have to say that one's um, influenced by people all the time with whom you work. But my, my real experience was self taught. In the, in the, in the front line of politics. Um, it, it was, I, I suppose I had started life, adult life was in the property world, so I, I liked bombed out property, um, in the, you know, renovating and building and that sort of thing. But, and my early life in politics, as I said, was about derelict land and reclaiming it. Peter Walker had created the derelict land scheme to get rid of the coal tips and the extractive dumps in the countryside. I took the derelict land grant into the urban areas and used it to, frankly, enable derelict land to compete with the suburbs. It, the, the derelict land usually had a negative value because of yesterday's detritus. Um, it could be toxic, it could just have old buildings, whatever it is. but. Anyone wanting to build a house would say, well, look, I can build cheaper houses in the suburbs. And people wanting to buy houses said, I don't want to live in those circumstances. So greening, to simplify the argument, derelict land was a way to give back to the the land a competitiveness, the opportunity to become useful. And that was the story of the 80s. In the same context, if you spent the public money making the land competitive, you could then get a builder to put houses on it. So you've not only got the public expenditure, you've got the gearing. Here in the East End, for example, we got ten pounds of private money for every pound we put into the London Docklands Development Corporation. So that was fantastic gearing. Liverpool, right the other end of the spectrum, we got one pound fifty. But we've still got one pound fifty. Um, and today, in scheme after scheme I've been involved with with the government we get four, five, six pounds of private money on top of what the government can afford. So gearing has become absolutely central, but it it has also created the partnerships. When I was in Liverpool, when I first became a cabinet minister, the public and private sector hated each other. It was all abuse. You shouted to opposite tops of mountains at each other. If you said, here's some money providing you cooperate, they come down from the mountaintops and they sit round the table and they suddenly discover they're Bill and Ben, and become mates, got a common purpose, a common experience. And so the gearing, the, 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 the partnerships, they were the 80s. And then we moved in the 90s to uh, City Challenge. And I've explained that at some length. That was a formative experience. But these, you ask about how one was influenced. Well, of course, the generalization that occurs to me out of that it was the people that did it. I just saw that if you change the circumstances, people changed. And, and we started with derelict land, that worked, so we tried derelict communities, and that worked. Now we're doing it on a massive scale, from Whitehall back to the areas of where, which made this country in the first place. London didn't make this country. It played a significant role, but, but the great 18th century powerhouses, Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, Birmingham, they played their role too. It wasn't until the condition of the people was so awful that London centralized powers to ameliorate those conditions. In doing so, which was necessary, in doing so, they replaced the power of the great entrepreneurial barons with local authorities, and they had a very different motive.
1: You've not mentioned one of your great political heroes, of course you didn't know, which is David Lloyd George. Ah, well. And I remember, (laughs) it's the only time I've censored myself, really, as a journalist, I remember coming to see you when you've been made Secretary of State for Defense moving from environment and you brought this great portrait of Lloyd George with you from the government picture collection. And I said, you brought your hero with you and you said to me, I'd be grateful if you didn't mention that in the piece, Peter, because you understand but the Conservative Party will not. Well, It's, well, a, it's a century this uh, December since LG became Prime Minister and actually transformed the entire mechanics of government in the course of winning the Great War. And tell, tell us why he's your hero and what it is in the characteristics of Lloyd George, who Ken Morgan, our friend Ken Morgan, described as an artist in the use of power, do you remember?
2: Well, you know, if you, I was born and brought up in Swansea. Now, in comfortable circumstances, middle-class circumstances, so I'm not looking for any sort of uh, uh, association with poverty or anything of that sort. But if you're born and brought up in Swansea, you are at the bottom end of the Swansea Valley and to get to there, you have to drive through the Merthers and the Pontedulleses and the, all of this. And um, so you know that there is another world. And then you have this extraordinary charismatic man, great flows of oratory, who comes from South Wales.
1: North Wales.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, comes from Wales, comes from Wales. North Wales. Yes, of course, North Wales. You're quite right, you're quite right. But, but, but it's, I mean, it's all the same. Cymru best boy, you know. And, and uh, um, so, so it was very easy to to be uh, attracted by this extraordinary figure. There's a wonderful. I mean, it, it's, there's uh, uh, there, there are, oh, there's the story of Lloyd George, who entertained a f- serious international politician in Wales and. Uh, uh, he, the, the overseas guy said, well, what, what makes this land? He said, come with me. And he said, uh, we'll walk up that hill. And they, they walked to the pastures at the bottom. And uh, what happens here, said the potentate? He said, well, here we, we, we rear the cattle and um, we, we raise the, have the gardens and the, fru- the fruit. Up they went a bit further. It's pretty rocky, pretty rough going. What happens here? Well, here we, we have sheep, and we get the wool and the, the meat, and that's wonderful. And that by this time, they were at the top of the mountain, and the wind was galing, and the rain was down. And so, Mr. Lloyd George, what happens here? Here we breed men. <laughs> well, it appealed to me anyway. <laughs>
1: um, how much do you move from ministry to ministry? as a journalist, I always thought you took an industrial strategy with you, yeah. you always wanted to be Minister of, Industry, Minister of Industry and Production, whatever nominal task you had, defence, environment, wherever it was, you had this inside your head, an industrial plan, an industrial strategy. And tell, tell us a little bit about how you would have implemented that if you'd made the Premiership in 1990, if you could actually have unveiled across the entire piece the Hesseltine strategy.
2: Well, David Cameron gave me the most extraordinary, privileged opportunity to write a report called um, No Stone Unturned, and he gave me an official in each government department and a blank sheet of paper, and no attempt was ever made to interfere or censor anything that I said. Now, it's true to say anyone who had any knowledge of my background would have a fairly good idea what I was likely to say, but, but anyway, this was, this was an extraordinary privilege to have this, and, and you can see the, 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 the way in which I would have perhaps operated. Um, one of the recommendations is that there should be an, a committee led by the Prime Minister, which David Cameron actually established, but I don't think it got much credibility. But uh, Theresa May has now created a a, a major cabinet committee linking industrial and economic policy under her chairmanship. And without that, you will not make progress because Whitehall is not geared to uh, following a a journey that is not clearly defined as their own remit. So, for example, you, you will not get the Ministry of Health thinking in terms of uh, the pharmaceutical industry that to them the pharmaceutical industry is the guy who produces the pills and they want the price of the pills down because the health service buys them and, and that's the view of the Ministry of Health and you can understand it if I was Minister of Health I can see why that it would be me. But the pharmaceutical industry is one of the world's most adventurous, most innovative, and uh, absorbing of all the high tech and research facilities of our universities and that. So building a successful pharmaceutical industry is very, very important. Um, uh, the, um, I, I, I've been involved in so many circumstances. I'll give you an example of where industrial policy takes over. I was Minister of Aerospace. Um, in 1972 when uh, a submission arrived on my desk saying, can we have six million pounds because you know those beastly French and Germans are cheating again and they're putting this much money into their space policy and we've got to catch up, Minister. So I said, that's fine, it's terribly important to keep up with the French and Germans. Um, but before I give you the six million pounds, the announcement of which will be wired to, the, to Bonn and Paris before I've signed the paper, and they'll put more in. uh, Please just answer this question to me. How much does Europe spend on space policy? Not just Britain, but Europe. And then tell me how much America spends. And I'll never forget the figures. There was the whole European space budget was 200 million. The American budget was 1.2 billion, six times as much. Now, from that moment on, you know that we will never compete with America on space policy. But, and so me putting another six million in order to try and stick the French and Germans in the eye was just toy town. The trick was to try and get Europe to think together. Then you might be able to do deals with the Americans in research and exploration or with the Japanese or someone. Uh, and we, we did that. Um, But Whitehall, basically, the Ministry of Defense said it was a grave threat to Britain's security because of the Atlantic Alliance, Um, Margaret Thatcher said she wouldn't have anything to do with it because she had the post office and they had a big space program. But so I had to do it with my own program. And the interesting thing was that over the years, I became industry secretary and I became defense secretary and I completely wiped out the arguments that had been put to me when I was in, when I was in, in, in Minister of Aerospace, there was the Minister of Defence absent, um, When I became Minister of Defence, I explored the arguments of complete fiction. No possible reason why we shouldn't have the Ministry of Defence budgets involved in the, in the space program. Ditto with the post office when I became involved in uh, the Department of Trade and Industry. So uh, we created the European Space Agency. Out of that, I said to the British industry, what do you want? They said, we want the leadership of satellite technology. So I said, fine, what do the French want? They want us back in launcher technology. What do the Germans want? They want post-Apollo. I said, fine. I went off around the country, Europe, and I said, look, this is a deal. You get launchers, you get post-Apollo, we get leadership of satellite technology, and the deal to create the European Space Agency was done in the way this country operates, of course, it went to Marconi's, the leadership of the satellite world, and years later the French
1: bought Marconi's. That's the way it is. By my calculation, I think Mrs May's industrial strategy, which you've had a big say in, with this new cabinet committee announced just yesterday, to which you were referring.
2: I've had no say in it.
1: Well, I think that your report, no Stone Unturned, ah. is traceable. Ah. In that's, the DNA, if I can yes, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the sixth since, the ni- since 1945, beginning with Clem Attlee's central economic planning staff. The most ambitious was the Labour Party's National, Labour Government's National Plan, September 65. But before we had that, McMillan's Neddy, which he created and done one, Jim Callaghan's picking winners, Ted Heath's Industrial uh, Act, Industry Act 72. I think that's six, is it? This is six or seven. Why is it going to work this time? Is it the spur of Brexit, the anxiety? That well, off?
2: look, it will only work if the Prime Minister believes in it and is prepared to give the time to it. Uh, and all the indications are that she does, um, from what I've seen. I mean, I, I know no more than you do. But um, she has made a great emphasis on this. She's put herself in charge of it. And that's as good a sign as you could expect in the immediate short term that she's been there. So I I travel with optimism, Um, but of course it's one thing to say we'll have a committee, it's another to define the industrial strategy, and that is going to take time, and the benefits of it are not short-term. There are no short-term, easy options of this sort.
1: I think what's distinctive about your no stone unturned was the degree to which you argue that devolution and decentralization is absolutely crucial, but unless you can restore the vitality to those areas outside the city-state of London and the southeast. It's not going to work. And I think it's the linking of the two that is the special ingredient of your approach, isn't it?
2: Well, you see, my analysis, uh, which was, uh, who built this country? And I, I know perfectly well that the great trading cities were a vital part of the 18th century Emergence of Britain as a world power, and the existence of empire was actually our market. I mean, people don't perhaps take this so much into account. But, But not only did we
0: blaze a trail
2: in industrial innovation, but we had district commissioners and governors all over the world. I mean, two thirds of the world was painted pink in my youth, and and so that was an incredible combination of power Uh, but it it, in Israeli language the condition of the people who migrated from the rural areas to these to the urban areas was appalling and so democracy being the, 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 uh, the the driver of the people's will people wouldn't put up with it and nor should they put up with it and so you you had to create a tax structure and and
0: cycle the money from where you could
2: get it by taxes into an equalization process across every part of the country. Now, that was thoroughly desirable. I've got no complaints about that, Um, of course not. But when you did that, the tax levels were quite high, which had the effect, of course, of taking money away from the wealth creators. Um, But the creation of local democracy replaced the buccaneers, who had made these great decisions and innovative activities, with a publicly owned service run by local councillors. And the local councillors were were not motivated by the same things as those who had created wealth in the first place. They, They were elected to do something quite different. So, as a local councillor, you were spending perhaps a third of the local expenditure in the area, but you were spending it, and you were responsible for the education, for the street cleaning, for the health, for the this, the that. That's what you were thinking about, and that's what you were being voted for. So, um, it changed the whole motivation, but that could have worked if they were given the freedom to spend the money on amelioration as they thought it was relevant. But they were not. London created the great spending departments and they got their money from the treasury and they then uh, 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 um, imposed policies on the rest of the country and indeed on London's authorities itself. So uh, if you were home secretary, your, your whole political career was focused on police and law and order and fire services. So that's what that's what you went and fought for. And then, when you got the money, you told everybody by the most minute detail of circular and ring fencing and budget control exactly how they'd spend it. And if you were if you were ambitious chief constable, you knew perfectly well that your career would be much influenced by what they thought of you in the Home Office.
0: And if you were a local authority
2: responsible for expenditure, you knew perfectly well that come late February, there would be overspends or underspends, and the central government would have a bit of extra cash it had to spend before the year end, because that's the way the system works. And if you wanted to get your share of it, you wanted to be on good side with the spending departments. So there was a complete circular process imposing Whitehall's will on the local communities. Now, a lot of very good things happened as a result of that, but the people who were the beneficiaries were not part of that process. And so if you have a, you had two things. You had, first of all, a division of the money, and the people spending it were they, the, 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 the loyal servants of the spending departments. What there wasn't was a place-based assumption either economically, or as I was saying, in terms of the more deprived council estates. And the Albert Bohr meeting that I went to was very informative. I mean, there were decent, honorable people doing things, but they'd never met from different functional departments. And, And there was no effective voice for many of the tenants' organizations. In some cases there are. But by and large, they're told and what central government does, if I may use a sort of a sort of imagery, it puts sticking plasters on the social problems of our time. There's a lot of talk about the Troubled Families Initiative. So you, you go for troubled families. But what I think you have got to do is to look at the place
0: and all the problems of it and have
2: a, 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 a two-way dialogue coming up from the people who live there. Um, And I think that the the trouble, the sticking-plaster solution dealing with the problems, whether it's drugs or crime or whatever it may be, doesn't spend enough time saying, look,
0: we know these are the problems,
2: it's very good to try and cope with them, but how much better if we could create a vibrant community which changes the whole atmosphere? But to do that, you've got to
1: involve the local people. There's a subsidiary angle to all this. We seem to be balkanizing our country in the name of devolution and decentralization. In some places, it's going to be a powerhouse. Other places, it's going to be clusters of counties. We have the question of Scotland. We have devolution to Wales and Northern Ireland as well. Do you not think, Michael, that we need a, quite a serious look about the patchwork approach that we're taking to devolution and decentralization in terms of structures, as well as the revitalizing point that you've made?
2: I, I, you know, I don't because I've lived through this sort of uh, uh, question for 40 years and this country is brilliant at setting up commissions and inquiry. Um, let Let us examine this, that or the other and we'll bring a worthy group of people in and they will spend 18 months by which time the political climate has changed and the government is fighting for its life, or whatever it may be, uh, or there's a new Secretary of State, you know, all the sort of things that happen, and the the steam goes out of it. So when I wrote No Stone Unturned, I said to myself, I am going to build on the existing frameworks. Um, Now, the government very sensibly has said, we are going to respond to local demand as opposed to imposing. Uh, The the interesting question about devolution in Scotland is whether it's devolution at all. Because what I I think is a question worth asking, let's keep the temperature down, is whether it isn't just been replicating Whitehall in Edinburgh. Whether Aberdeen and Inverness and uh, and, uh, Glasgow have really got the the devolved opportunities that Manchester, Liverpool uh, have got is a good question to ask. Second point, um, there is a difference between... Um, in what you can achieve in the the conurbations with their unitary boroughs and what you can achieve in the counties with their two-tier structures. So instead of spending a lot of time, which I I have spent quite a lot of time trying to move to unitary counties, uh, which I still believe in, uh, that would have taken up Parliament and blood. So why not just sort of say, okay, put the thing together, the existing structure, do the best you can, get what you can, hopefully get leaders elected for the whole conurbation. Don't take any powers away from anybody, just offer them new powers and new money. And it's working. Uh, Already we've got a, a lot of the biggest cities have moved into the conurbation directly elected leader model for next March, next May. And um, there's, there's dialogue going on in many different places about the same thing. So, I think the art of the practical and the possible in order to get the fastest progress, out of that will come maybe two or three governments from now. Somebody will turn to you, Peter, and say, no, don't you think we ought to clean all this up? And I'll be watching, I'll be watching.
1: <laughs> two very quick historical questions before we open up. Your 1990 challenge to Mrs Thatcher. I think I'm right in saying that a wise old friend of yours, fellow cabinet minister in um, Mrs Thatcher's government, said, Michael, don't challenge her, just wait. She'll lose the next election. You'll be the natural successor as leader of the Conservative Party. The premiership will fall into your lap. I think that was the advice. Why didn't you take it?
2: Because uh, he, he said, he didn't quite say what you said. What he said was, you do nothing you will be leader of the opposition in 18 months. And my reply was, I don't want to be leader of the opposition, because that's what I would have been. We'd have lost the, next, the 92 election and um, with the poll tax and all that. And then I, I might well have been leader of the opposition, but we would, the Tories would have been out of power um, and I had a heart attack in 93, I'd have been out of office within 18 months. I, because the Tories were going to go down after, 90, uh, after, uh, after 92, The Labour government would have got rid of the, um, the poll tax. They'd been very popular in doing that. And um, uh, Tony Blair would have... Would, it would have been Neil, Neil Kinnock, wouldn't it? Um, would, would have... Um, uh, anyway, my own view is the Labour Party would have, would have remained in power for some time and, uh, and they 'd have got rid of me in, in a, for failing to recover the Tory fortunes, but I mean the, I, what I wanted was to, to was to preserve a period of conservative rule and, and if I did nothing else, I did that. John Major won the ninety two election very successfully, and we were there for another five years by which time the whole climate of the sort of things i 'm talking about local partnership gearing, competitiveness and distribution of funds devolution had become ingrained.
1: How much do you regret not becoming Prime Minister? Quinton Haleson was asked that by Anthony Clare in a wonderful In the Psychiatrist Chair broadcast, when he'd been so close in 63, and he said, I don't regret it really because I've known every Prime Minister to some degree since Arthur Balfour, and very few of them have died happy men. I thought that was a very interesting observation. How much regret do you have about that? Well,
2: I've never spent any great time. um, sort of regretting that because I have a very happy family life, a very successful company which I'm chairman of, a garden which Anne and I have created, and you can buy the book any time now. It's just <laughs> coming out. And uh, so I haven't spent any great time, but if you say to me, would I like to be in Prime Minister? Yes, of course I would. Um, and, and Like all of the new incumbents of the job, you think it will be better for you.